I'm Jason Lustig, and welcome to Jewish History Matters. Before we get into our episode today, I want to thank you for listening and invite you to participate in a brief survey about the podcast. We're trying to learn more about our listeners, what topics and themes you're interested in, and how you learned about the podcast. And we're also raffling off a $30 Amazon gift card to two lucky listeners who take the survey. You can find it online at jewishhistory.fm slash survey. And we'll be running the survey from now until April 15th. Thanks in advance for your participation. And I hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited to share this episode with Sarah Stein about her recent book, Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century. It's just a phenomenal book, and it's also an entryway into an important discussion about diaspora histories, the pathways of Sephardic Jews across the 20th century, and the importance of everyday historical materials. These papers of the Levy family not only give us the book's evocative title, but they also animate a tremendously rich story and bring us to think about our own place in history. Sarah Abravaya Stein is a professor of history and holds the Maurice Amato Endowed Chair in Sephardic Studies at UCLA's Department of History. And she's also the Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Director of UCLA's Alan D. Levy Center for Jewish Studies. A couple of other notable books that Sarah's written include Plumes, Ostrich Feathers, Jews, and a Lost World of Global Commerce, and Sephardi Lives, which Sarah co-edited with Julia Phillips-Cohen. And I'll also mention, especially because it relates so closely to the Family Papers book, that in 2012, Sarah also published, together with Aaron Rodriguez and the translator Isaac Jerushalmi, A Jewish Voice from Ottoman Salonika, the Ladino memoir of Sadi Bissalel Alevi, a memoir which led Sarah to the Levy Papers, which brought life to the book we'll talk about today. I've already said that Family Papers is a tremendous book, and it's gotten a lot of attention recently. The Economist named it one of the best books of 2019, and it was also a New York Times book review editor's choice and a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. And I'll just briefly mention before we dive into the conversation three ways in which I think the book is particularly exciting as a way of framing the issues that we'll get into today. First, the book is a social history and a microhistory. It tells a dramatic story about one family, and each chapter brings the focus onto one person. But the book is also a globe-spanning story that tells of 20th century Jewish history through the fate of one family. Second, I think that the book underlines what it means to have a diasporic history. Fairly obviously, Jewish history is a history of diasporas. But this book, Family Papers, illustrates this point beautifully as it traces the divergent pathways of the Levy family and of Sephardic Jewry in general to different parts of the world. And third, I think that the book really evokes the meaning of these family papers. As we'll talk about today, Sarah suggests that as members of the Levy family moved across oceans and around the world, it was this disparate collection of family papers, of letters and documents, which kept them a family. I think that it's pretty easy, as professional historians go, 
to get caught up in the drama of the discovery of a particular cache of documents which we can study. So there's definitely a methodological angle. But if we take a step back and take it a step further, I think that it allows us to meditate on the meaning of papers in our own lives and the value of history's traces in today's digital age. And this leads us back to something I gestured at before. As we look at the history of one particular family through the 20th century's drama and trauma, well, each and every one of us also has a family who traversed the same time period and brought us to our own lives today. And that's certainly something to think about. As a historian, I think it's sometimes easy to divorce ourselves from the past. Those things happened then, and we live now. But we're a part of history too. And someday, someone might look through our emails or our birthday cards and try to reconstruct what it meant to live through the 21st century. Before we dive into the conversation, I should just say thank you for subscribing. It's been just over two years now since I launched the podcast, and it's been so meaningful to see people all over the world listening in. And if you enjoy this episode, I hope that you'll share it with a friend. That's really the only way that more people find out about the podcast. You can find the Jewish History Matters podcast on all the major services and apps, like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and so on. And you can also follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at Jewish History FM. And we've also got a Facebook group. You can find this particular episode with Sarah Stein at jewishhistory.fm slash familypapers, where I've also linked to an excerpt from the book. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so glad to be able to share this conversation with you. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to sit down with you and to talk about your book. I really enjoyed reading it. It's such a pleasure. I was wondering if you could just start us off uh, very briefly by telling us a bit about why the story is so special. What is it about this family that tells us something really unique, something about them that perhaps drew you to them, and where you think that we learned something big about them and about the broader history? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. The family whose history I tell here, which spans roughly a century, it, it is a global history. It follows a family through the dramatic events of the 20th century and the development of their own familial global diaspora. In some ways, it is a generalizable Jewish story. In some ways, it is a Sephardic story. And in some ways, it is unique to the family whose history I tell. Let me explain what I mean. It is a generalizably Jewish history in that I would say it maps a century of the dramatic world events and personal choices and transitions that Jews faced and confronted and, and underwent. Migration, state violence, warfare, shifting cultural and religious norms, shifting gender norms. All of this is prototypically Jewish. On the other hand, it is a uniquely Sephardic and Mediterranean story, a story that has to do with the end of, of the Ottoman Empire, the shifting primacy of Ladino and Judeo-Spanish culture, the acquisition of European languages, even down to the timeline of the Holocaust era, which of course is also a generalizable Jewish history, but it still is uniquely Sephardic in its contours. 
so it's a Jewish story and it is a Sephardic story and it's a Mediterranean story and an Ottoman story and a post-Ottoman story. But I also think it is, as you said, unique to this family. I've often wondered, could one pull on the edges of any family and tell an equally rich multi-generational story? I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question, but I will say that this family enabled that kind of project partly because they were historically a family of letters, Mm -hmm. of editors, of printers, of teachers, of journalists, of writers, who for so very long treasured the written word and saved the written word and shared with one another through letters the written word. Even when the family stopped to hold fast to that traditional occupation of printing and editing, those documents and also the photographs and the material objects that they were managed to preserve, they understood that they mattered and they passed through the family. And I should mention to those who are listening who haven't had a chance to look at the book that much of the sources for the book are in family hands. Um, I also consulted many, many archives, but the family still continue to own and treasure their papers. So I think that I was able to tell a particularly rich story because members of the family played pivotal roles in modern Sephardic history. I made the decision that this was going to be a book that wouldn't be outwardly driven by argument, as have some of my other projects. I did make the determination to focus on uh, and to employ a means of storytelling. I was really interested in the idea of writing for a new kind of audience, uh, writing a book that would appeal both to scholars and to general readers with an investment in Jewish history or Sephardic history or global history or family history. I also was struck that there are so many excellent books that tell epic stories of Ashkenazi families that allow us to follow families through the dramatic arc of the modern era. We really don't have anything like that for the Sephardic world. So I was intrigued by a very intimate a window into modern Sephardic history that that could be understood at the human level, the very personal level, and through the really very intimate lives of individuals. And I thought that that is not only a narrative goal, but also is really a way of providing a kind of intellectual service to a broad readership. Part of what's amazing here about the story is the kind of detail that you can pull out I understand that it stemmed in part from your work with Aaron Rodrigue on publishing the memoirs of Sadi Batalel Ashkenazi Alevi, who's the patriarch of this whole family. So how did you move from the memoir to this book? And how did that shape your approach to this history? When I finished publishing this translation with Aaron Rodrigue, with a masterful translation and glossary and transliteration from the Ladino by Isaac Drew Salmi. We finished this project, which was an attempt to offer to English language readers and also to students of Ladino, the, a translation of the first Ladino memoir known to be written, a memoir that offers a very rich and turbulent and intimate view of 19th century Salonika and Jewish Salonika in the Ottoman world. When we were finishing I was gripped by the question of what had happened to this family. And my pathway was the actual physical memoir that Sadi had written, which had extraordinarily made a journey from Ottoman Salonika to Paris, to Rio de Janeiro, to Jerusalem. I really began with that question of how does a a flimsy, 
fragile, vulnerable paper notebook in which uh, something has been written by hand? How does it make that incredible journey in the face of the collapse of an empire, a massive fire, world wars, the family's, you know, migration in many directions? And I just began with that question, how did this happen and what happened to the family? And it was really that question that sent me on this nearly, you know, decade-long journey to provide a detailed and globally wide-reaching answer, which was much more complex and interesting and temporally and spatially far-reaching than I would have ever imagined. You are presenting a story that teaches us about the big picture as well as the little picture. But I think that you're here also making a kind of an implicit argument about how we approach and how we understand history and also our own lives, which is to say that you're showing ways that all people and all families and all communities have histories that intersect with broad historical trends. And I think it's a powerful message of social history, one that we can talk about in methodological terms, but I think has a perhaps even broader importance, which is to say that how can we understand how everyday people's lives and everyday developments within their lives tell us about all sorts of historical events and developments which take place around them and around us. And I think that it tells us something about the historicity of our own lives and about the recent past in ways that a standard narrative history perhaps doesn't really force us to confront. Yes. I mean, I think you can have access to these broad questions through seemingly myopic human details. The fact that a man who is a Jewish community leader in Thessaloniki, known as Salonika, in the 1920s, a distinguished community leader who is second only to the chief rabbi in power. I'm speaking of Daut Effendi Levy, that he should write his son in Rio in the 1920s, begging for financial assistance because his suit is threadbare to an embarrassing degree. It is a kind of speck, a historical piece of dust that would be so easy to overlook, but in fact lets us understand what that period felt like, that pendulum between cultural vivacity and strength and vulnerability, really how it's manifest on, quite literally, in the shirt on one's back. I would add to that that, to me, it's extremely important that uh, women drive this story forward as persistently, as actively as do men. Not always because they have left the same quantity of a paper trail, but always because I believe that their stories were of equal import and wanted to flesh them out as richly as I could. Sometimes there were women who left more documentary residue, let's say, than men. But sometimes there were those who had a very, very light touch on the on the archive, but whose stories I really had to attempt to inhabit mm -hmm. through a sparser paper trail in order that, that the story of children, the story of women, the story of family life would be the engine of this book. Part of me feels like the main character here is not even the people, but the archive. You know, literally, the book is titled Family Papers. Uh, it places the collection of historical materials at the forefront. And as you just mentioned, you came to this project in part from thinking not just how did the people make a path through history, but how did the files get from one place to another and ultimately to a position where you could study them as a scholar? I just think it's so fascinating, your laser focus on this particular archive, and in a certain way on the dispersion of the archives and the family papers around the world as a way into the dispersion of this family and of 
Ottoman Jews, Sephardi Jews, broadly speaking? First of all, I should say it's actually not really an archive in a sense. I mean, the book is equally concerned with the history of a family over time and space and migration and interested in the letters that they exchanged and preserved and, which is a point I make in the book, the letters which I have come to understand keep them a family even when other forces pull them apart, especially the forces of distance and time and acculturation. Right. That act of sending and receiving, the, the fibers of the paper, are actually binding together right. this family. And I said before that in a way it's not really an archive. I want to explain what I mean. Of course, these are issues dear to your heart because of your own research. The family papers, as I mentioned a moment ago, are mostly in family hands. They aren't, as you said a moment ago, files. They are jumbles of treasured objects that the families themselves can no longer read or understand or contextualize, but they preserve quite faithfully. To supplement those many, many family collections of different sizes and, and shapes and natures, I did need to turn to formal archives and formal files, 30 archives, institutional archives, to help me fill in holes, which without which... I would never have had a full understanding of the family papers. There's something really important here, and that something is that until recently, the documents of the Sephardic past have not been systematically collected or preserved or pursued. There are not enough people who have the desire to read them, who have the language skills to read them, who have the context to understand them. Jewish archives, institutional archives, I would say, are largely guilty for not respecting these materials. So therefore, there is much more in family hands for this cultural world. And I would say the same is true of, of North African Jewish families, of Middle Eastern Jewish families. Much more is in family hands, astonishing collections, than you would find of Ashkenazi yes. Jewish families. I agree 110% with everything you've just said. You know, I think people who have been writing about Sephardic Jewish history and particularly, I think about the Jews of Salonika, Devinar's book, for instance, you know, he is also reflected on these kinds of challenges of following the archives, following the papers of a group of people whose papers have not been systematically collected in the same way as you know, German Jews. Yeah, or thankfully like the that. tide is turning, but I would say that that has been the case. Right. Yes. right. I think part of what I was trying to say before was not to say that the papers are the central character, but the thread through which you trace everything. And you really emphasize so much the physicality. You talk a lot about the handwriting. You at one point, you talk about a letter that was written kind of on its side. Also, a lot of photographs. There's so much to delve into in terms of thinking about the role of the family papers, which you place front and center just in terms of the title. And I know the titles are usually chosen by the press, not by the author, but still, it's, it's, it's still, it's there. The part of what you're talking about here, and again, it's not just methodology, but it's, I think, a really important set of like critical issues about history itself. You talk about how the members of these families don't really understand their own papers. They, they look at a letter, they don't speak the language. And I think it raises questions about why these objects were so important for them that they held on to them, even though they couldn't read them themselves. And also kind of like about the role of historians and scholars to help people understand the broader context of the histories that they themselves have been a part of. But I think that for me, when I think about why history matters, all sorts of big picture issues that one can talk about. But it's also a question of how we can help people understand their own place in history and their own histories. And I think that this is part of what you're talking about here. 
there are many things that I can see in these materials that the families that own them cannot see. But they mean something different to them that I had to struggle to understand. And it was very important to me to pursue the story and until the, the present day. And in some sense, the story is still unfolding for me. Um, as we sit here right now, there is a gathering in Manchester of two branches of the extended Levy family who have never met before, but who met because of the book, because of my research. I have introduced them and they are coming together. So they have a relationship to their past. They have memories they remember people, they remember smells and sounds and the way people comported themselves. I'm thinking of someone who told me about how somebody held their body and they have memories that I could not pull from the paper. So it was in that sense, an instrumental partnership where I can bring them a story, especially for the older members of the family, but not only their connection to the past, also brought me closer to the story itself. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. But I want to go back to something I just asked a moment ago, which is just, so why is it so important to them? You know, like you said, they held on to these things. They didn't catalog them. They didn't organize them or donate them to an institutional archive, but they held on to them. When you talk about why history matters, clearly this family's own history mattered to themselves. So why do you think that things like family papers are so important and so valuable. You know, why does this history well, matter to them? I really, I end the book with a reflection on this point. And the, the point that I reach after following this family and their documentary and visual and material object trail, the conclusion I reach is that for them, family papers were an inheritance. They were their culture. Um, they were their history. They didn't just tell the history they were the threads that connected them to their past. And I end with that rumination partly because I think it presents a challenge for the present at a moment when letters have become an endangered art. And needless to say, we produce lots of information and lots of words and text broadly defined, but it is of a fundamentally different nature. The letters this family exchanged over the course of a century were letters written over hours and days and sometimes weeks that took days and weeks and sometimes months to reach one another that were sometimes stained with tears that they waited for that were incomplete, as are all human narratives. So they were incredibly precious. And we must remember, too, that this is a family that was geographically separated from one another and that suffered fantastical losses in the Holocaust, which was, of course, typical of the Salonican Jewish community. Yeah. Part of what makes this story so powerful, besides all the things that we've discussed so far, is that this is just such a very personal story. And you really used these papers in a particular way, emphasizing their physicality and bringing the reader into close contact, not just with these people and with the events, but with their perspective. I think this is especially true through your use of the photographs uh, throughout the book, which is really just phenomenal. You know, it gives a, a visceral sense of who these people were and their relationship to each other. And I think, for instance, you, know, you talk about the Olympics in Germany in 1936, and you have a photo from Karsa, you know, one of the members of this family who was there and took a, a picture you know, from his place in the Olympic Stadium. And that literally is his point of view that you're allowing us as readers 
to embody and to look kind of through his eyes in a way. So like when we think about it in these terms, you know, how is it that looking at these kind of family papers and telling this kind of story allows us to get a personal perspective on the past? It strikes me that historians do use family papers quite a lot, but not necessarily in the fashion that I have chosen to hear. And I think partly the decision was not a decision about sources that produced the book that I produced, but a decision about narrative. So I, I make the choice to organize the book chapter by chapter, person by person. And there are, for the most part, characters, we follow them through their lives and they repeat, but there are several characters who appear only once, command one chapter, and then for specific reasons, they disappear from, from the story. So what I mean to say is I do not think that the source base necessarily dictated the tone. I think it was rather a process of shaping a narrative strategy of a desire to storytell through people and to let individuals whom I found compelling um, move us forward in time and move the drama along in a way that illuminates what it was like to experience all of these things, to experience shifting legal regimes, to experience the development of the passport state, to experience the shifting boundaries in Southeastern um, Europe over the course of the 20th century. All of this, needless to say, and, and this is the kind of argument, of course, that women's historians, historians of gender, and others have been, have been saying for a very long time, we can flip the script and tell this through the story of individuals. And um, we learn no less about these macro phenomenon. But what we do learn is a great deal more about how abstract processes were experienced. So what does it mean in terms of the clothing one, one wears, the emotions one feels, the, the way one speaks to a loved one? the objects that you preserve or you lose, the very physical experience of migration, of being the one who is left behind when all the siblings and cousins have left. It's a different window. Yeah, I mean, I think especially when we think about this book in connection with the earlier book, the, the translation of the memoir, in a certain way, they're about the same thing, but they tell a very different kind of story. And part of that, I don't want to be too reductionist or you know, too materialist about the relationship of the sources that we use and the histories that we tell. But I would argue that memoirs and papers tell very different kinds of stories or they allow us to access history in very different kinds of ways. You know, one might say that memoirs, autobiographies are self-constructed narratives about a person's sense of their own life path. And they often leave things out, right, on purpose, or they emphasize certain things to make a point about something. You know, they want to tell a story that they want other people to know. Whereas in a certain way, one can say that papers, archival materials, broadly defined, hold a lot of secrets, you know, things that maybe they didn't want people to know, but they're just still kind of there. I think about in this particular instance, uh, this is a whole story of Vital, the family member who was a collaborator during the, uh, the period of, of the German occupation and the Nazi regime. I think that, that part of what's happening here also is that there's just this very interesting contrast that one can say about the different kinds of stories that we can tell. Yeah, I'll explain a bit about this rather horrific chapter of the family history. There is a descendant of Sadi Beslel Ashkenazi Alevi, the patriarch with whom the book begins, who is a collaborator of the Nazi occupiers and is ultimately arrested and tried by the Greek state after the war and 
becomes the only Jew in all of Europe to be executed for complicity with the Nazis at the, the insistence of a state, Greece, which is a horrific, a horrific episode to uncover. I did not uncover that in the family documents. The only way I knew about the trial of Hassan was because I found the trial transcript, which is located in two versions of the transcript in two different locations. And there was a third, which is yet a third a version, which I knew once existed in an archive and is no longer accessible there. They can't find it. The trial transcripts supplemented by a lot of testimony tell a very complete story of the very grotesque excesses of this man, Vital Hassan, who serves as the head of the Jewish police of Salonika and abets the deportation of the Jews of Salonika, as well as many, many more crimes, including a great deal of sexual violence. The family papers, as I say, ellipsize this history, not because the people did not know it happened, but because they didn't want to write it in letters, even to family members who also knew it had happened. It was only after discovering this history in other documents that I could reread the papers and understand that they were referencing him so obliquely and referencing conversations about him that they would have in person, but they would not put in print. So letters lie, letters conceal, letters deceive, but so does everything. So do documents of state, so do memoirs, so do any kinds of sources that we examine as historians. I mean, this is obviously an emotionally explosive matter for the family. But I think at the very deepest level, the point remains true that no matter the source that we are setting out to interrogate, however intimate or however um, seemingly official, that fundamental challenge is always there of trying to tell as complete a story as we can by suturing together a messy and diverse and contradictory and elusive source base. I mean, I think a part of what you're talking about here is methodological, right? And part of what you're talking about here is about how we encounter and understand the past as historians and trying to pick apart the pieces and try to find what's hidden. You know, it might be because people didn't want us to find out about it. They maybe perhaps wanted to conceal things or maybe for any other reason, you know, it's just not accessible so directly through the sources, no matter what kind of sources those are. I think it brings us to this broader question of kind of like how you have written this book. I love the the family tree that you have at the beginning of the book. It's a really useful resource for readers, right? Because it's kind of like a map, right? You're reading through chapters like, who is this person again? You can go look and see how they're all related. But it also highlights the kind of work that you had to put into it, the footwork, the research, the many conversations, I'm sure many research trips you know, all over the world to to gain access to this history and to be able to parse it all together. Yeah, The Family Tree is um, by Andrea Ventura, a, a, an artist I worked with very closely. And it was apropos of what I just said about how, how sources are selective. The full family tree that I have spreads over 11 pages and couldn't possibly be manifest in a book. So this is the book, Family Papers, View of the Family History. Yes, you have a relationship with these people, with the historical figures, through the people who are their descendants, in a way that I think that a lot of historians don't necessarily do. You know, I think about my research, looking at 20th century figures, their families are still around. I've tried reaching out to some of them about access to things they might have, but they don't have anything. The point being that I think that, that as scholars and as people who think about the past, broadly speaking, even people who don't do it professionally, we often kind of forget that you know some of them don't have descendants, but most of them do. How is it that we can think about the relationship of the past that we are telling as historians with the present? 
you said a moment ago that you write about characters of the 20th century and they have descendants and they don't have anything. So I move forward from the assumption that families always retain traces of the past, whether it is documentary or whether it is something more ghostly, a personality traits, the physical traits, the the inheritance, the emotional inheritance of their answers. So I always believe there is something to find. And it is out of that persistence of going to seek people out who told me they had nothing, they knew nothing. Many of the people I spoke to said they knew nothing or they had nothing. And ever more would be yielded with time. And I did indeed become really close with some of these uh, family members. And we, we correspond all the time. And it's very moving now, just this very week, that they are receiving the book and reading it and understanding their past and their present. And these are their words um, in different ways. We spoke a bit before about how you've written in different kinds of genres. Your focus for such a long time has been in global history. And this is true whether we look to your very first book on the history of uh, Yiddish and Ladino press, you know, whether we're talking about the trade in, in ostrich feathers uh, in your book Plumes, which is really about global trade and commerce uh, and industry. And here you're also taking a global perspective on history. You know, How does looking at a family allow us to tell an important global history, even though it's on a small scale? Well, my work has been peripatetic and has, I would say the through line is an interest in crossing boundaries of state, of polities, of geography. One of the formulations that I latched onto when I wrote Plumes was that I was interested in writing globally and thinking locally. And I think that too has been a kind of driving agenda for me through a variety of diverse projects. A family history takes that endeavor to some rather new extreme because the local isn't just a spatial local. It isn't necessarily a communal or a state local. It's also an intimate local. The bookends that you are toggling between the grandiose contexts that shape the lives of people of the 20th century and the most domestic personal details of what someone's living room looks like or what they're eating for breakfast or what mood they are in when they write a letter to their sister, what have you. Mm -hmm. That movement back and forth between those registers is a dramatic one, but it is still, I think, born of that desire that I have been struggling with through many projects and through many years to integrate histories, intimate and global and worldly. I think an important element here is just the nature of dispersion and diaspora. We've talked before about how this is true, both about the people and also about the artifacts, the family papers themselves. And I think that this is a really important element. You're not just comparing different places or talking about how they're related to each other, but you're exploring a phenomenon of dispersion. And this, of course, is people who are moving of their own volition and also they're forced to in many cases. But if we talk about the history of the 20th century as a whole, the most important themes is understanding global dispersion. And I think that here you're really bringing it forward in a very personal and human way. Members of this family move for so many reasons. They leave home at times in shame and failure. At other times, they leave home flush with opportunity and to seek greater opportunity. They leave as refugees. They leave as prisoners. 
they leave as opportunists. But as you say, movement becomes inextricable from their modern history. Not only movement away, but visits back. The relationship between those who left and those who stayed, which I think actually I came to realize in the course of writing this book is something that we perhaps haven't as Jewish historians given do heed to? What is that experience of being the one who stays when so many people leave? And what is your own relationship to the others who are there with you and the others who have gone away? Yes, they are taking part in a modern Jewish wave of mass migration. They are taking part in a 20th century endless cycle of displacement. But within the family, the stories of migration are really various. And that is also really intriguing to me to, to think about a family diaspora being shaped for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what's happening here as well, and here I, I want to say how I love the way the book is organized, it also has some issues, which is to say you're talking about how there are many stories which are taking place, and you have really so successfully captured the diversity of this, but it also creates the impression of a singular pathway. You move from Ottomans to nationals, to emigres, to captives, and then survivors, and familiars and descendants. And I'm not just listening to them to listen, but it illustrates a kind of a trajectory almost from the Ottoman history to something else. It creates, I think, a very important sense, just kind of like on the surface level of the historical shifts and the diffusion over time. So to what extent here are you telling a single story when you look at this family as a whole, or are you really bringing together many different stories that go in all different directions, just as much as all the people went in all different directions? Just to explain for people listening, those titles that you provide are um, section titles. And within each section, we have chapters under the name of individuals, Esther, Karsa, Daoud Effendi, Sam, it's Vida, etc. I am telling an arc of a story. The book doesn't lead with its arguments, but there are arguments that have gone into its construction. I think when I step back from this family's 20th century. It's really their 19th and 20th century. Perhaps the most important fact, beside the incredible devastation of the Holocaust, the most important fact is that over time, they are becoming more and more distant from the cultural concentrate that had bound together the Judeo-Spanish diaspora in the Ottoman lands for centuries. That is the defining cultural quality of their Sephardicness. Even though everywhere they go, they continue to be Sephardic Jews. Well, sometimes they're not Jews and sometimes they're not Sephardic Jews, but they continue to carry the history of Sephardic Jewry, which ebbs and flows. So it's not, I don't mean to say it's a story of loss, but it's a story of the dilution of that once extant cultural solution. So yes, those headings do tell a broad arc of modern Sephardic history. And I am trying to classify even though the book is very individuated and it takes this sort of, let's call it classification, is not meant to be apparent to any reader, but it is still, I think, a, a mapping that, that moves the scholarly conversation forward. When you talk about the arguments that are implicit in the book, I think alongside all of these things are, are making a really important point about the nature of the papers, the family papers themselves. You reflect on this a little bit in the introduction. You have a really remarkable statement that concludes it. I'll just read it. It says, what have we relinquished along with family papers? And I think that part of what you're doing here is you're contrasting 
a sense of like, we don't hold on to things anymore with this family that did. Perhaps this is a book that more people are going to read who are not professional historians. And I think that, that on the one hand, they're going to learn about the events themselves. They're going to see it through a very personal perspective, but it's also about a sense of history and a sense of the importance of history in their own place within history. So when you say, you know, what have we relinquished along with family papers? What is the sort of takeaway that you want people to gain in terms of understanding the importance of kind of like what we leave behind for history to find and of our own place within history? Well, there is an obsession with family history today, actually. Genealogy is, is alive and kicking, and DNA tests have infused it with new dimensions. I think today, people who are interested in their family histories are, for the most part, gravitating to this question of bloodline, which of course is complex from the perspective of Jewish history. Bloodline, and therefore, as I say in the book, you know, spit and a computer become your crucial tools to determining your past. I'm really trying to make another point, which is that for so long, it was other things defined a family, especially a family that was geographically separated from one another, including letters that came to tie them together. I'm not a pessimist. I don't think that we are jaundiced because we aren't writing letters. I don't think we lack in family culture because we aren't writing letters. I don't think that we have lost some cultural apex. But what I do think is that the nature of connections have shifted. Mm -hmm. The words that we exchange today, families and people, friends and colleagues and strangers, they are many, but they are not measured in the way that letters were measured. Mm -hmm. So we have drifted from a meditative mode of engagement to a more centripetal one. Mm -hmm. Again, this isn't meant to be a decline narrative. It's an observation that the nature of the sources we hold dear has shifted. And our time, the energies, the thought, the care that it takes to produce that conversation is simply different. So I think by looking to a different moment when letters not only mattered, but to this family in a way where everything we also gain some tools to assess where we are today and whether the things we understand to bind us as individuals and as families and as communities and, again, as networks of strangers, whether they are satisfying. You've talked about the ways in which this family history has mattered to the, to the Levy family. And you're also talking about the way in which family history matters to so many people today, that the genealogy, DNA testing, whatever is a phenomenon. When we think about history through the lens of this family history, how does it illustrate the reasons why history matters to all of us in the way in which we build our own sense of self from our sense of our family history, from whatever things that we hold on to, whether that's an heirloom or a set of letters, whatever that might be. I think that it raises important questions about why history matters, not just to historians, but to every person out there. I would say that in this book, Family Papers, history matters to the people because it was their lives. It wasn't an external reality. They are the engines of their 20th century. They are the actors. They are shaping their history entirely, although they are also prone to it in moments of vulnerability. So 
it teaches us that history is about relationships and people that historians have have often ignored children, relationships between parents and children or grandparents and children or cousins or that people are are agents of their time. So I think that this is a broad lesson that if we not only use the intimate papers of a family, but if we read them with a thirst to understand their world, to inhabit their their historical persona, we come away with a richer vision of the past. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. No, it's really been a lot of fun just to sit and talk about this book and about the big issues. So I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.